Hi, this is Dawn from Fireflight, and you're listening to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to BibleStudyPodcast.org. This is Toby, and today is Wednesday, June the 13th. Of course, as this is the second Wednesday of the month, we're doing our question and answer session today, and I have received some great questions from you guys. I'm not going to waste a lot of time with announcements or anything, but I do have one quick announcement. There will be no podcasts on Monday or Wednesday next week. Um, The Romans one is uh, postponed, and next Wednesday's podcast is postponed until Thursday, because uh, tomorrow, actually, is my birthday, and my family and I are going up to the mountains to do some, uh, some fishing with the kids. So what I wanted to do, one of the things we covered in this past Monday's uh, Romans podcast was uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 2, which says uh, that the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God or with the words of God. But if you remember, we are also going to talk in our Christian worldview uh, discussion about where the Bible comes from, who wrote it, who decided what goes in it and everything. So this all kind of actually ties together. And as I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, these are both on the same topic, basically. So we're going to tie those together. I'll be back next Wednesday night. So the podcast for the Romans Bible study and for the worldview study will be on Thursday, June the 21st. So thank you for your understanding and your patience with that. Let's go ahead and get started with uh, our first question, which came from Simon. He says, uh, my question for you today is, whenever I quote the Bible or attempt to inform friends of the actual real words of Christ or the intent of stories in the Bible, I am rebuffed with the statement, that's just how one person interprets the Bible, the next man sees it differently. Even in ironclad discussions such as immorality or God's original intent for mankind. Okay, let me let me comment on this this part of your question first. First of all, there is only one meaning to any statement, and that is the intended one. Otherwise, when you say that there is only one meaning to any statement, one might really mean that there is more than one meaning to that statement. So to say that there is more than one meaning in a statement is actually self-defeating. Now, I understand that there are um, there's innuendo, there's double entendre, you know, where you might have more than one meaning, but if the person making the statement, the, the the innuendo or the entendre, if the person making that statement or writing it doesn't mean to give it a double meaning, then it shouldn't be taken as such. Otherwise, you're probably falling into the fallacy of equivocation. And, you know, of course, we did a podcast on that. And that, that's where you change the intended meaning of a word. For example, if I ask you how much you weigh and you say light, well, if language is up to personal interpretation, I might think that you weigh nothing since light, as in light from a light bulb, has no weight. But of course, that's not what you meant. So the next time somebody tells you that's just how one person interprets the Bible, put something random out there in your response like, oh, that was a terrible movie. 
And, you know, when you have sufficiently confused the other person, let them know that you have interpreted their words to have meant something totally unrelated to the conversation. For example, you might say, oh, well, I've interpreted your words to mean that Star Wars Episode One was the best of the six Star Wars movies. And, of course, you know, they weren't talking about that at all, but... If language is up to personal interpretation, then you may as well have interpreted that, and that may as well have been what they were trying to communicate. Basically, if language has more than one meaning, and that is the meaning that the person saying or writing it means, uh, then communication is worthless. Now, this doesn't mean that we are always able to arrive at the correct interpretation, but it does mean that we recognize that there's only one meaning. Our job is to figure out what that is. That's the entire purpose of communication in general. And Simon continues here. On hot button issues like abortion, the popular refrain is no man can tell a woman what to do with her body or it's a woman's choice. Her body is hers to do with as she sees fit. And uh, thank you, Simon, for your question. In response, well, the Bible doesn't say much about the issue of abortion per se, but it does speak of the value of life in the womb and the humanness of the person while in the womb. Nobody really believes that we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Otherwise, it should be my right to close my eyes while I drive, for example. Or it should mean that I should be able to go out and do drugs, that anybody should be able to do, uh, to do drugs. So the whole argument that the woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her body is totally false. Nobody really believes that. Uh, otherwise, we would be passing legislation to legalize, you know, absolutely everything because everything starts, everything we do starts with our bodies. Secondly, the baby's body is distinct from the mother's, even in the womb. The mother has a totally, totally different genetic code than the baby does. So even if the woman did have the right to do whatever she wanted to her own body, that doesn't mean she has the right to kill another person. And third, no scientist or doctor will even deny that life begins at conception. There is a continual process of cellular division and growth that begins at conception and ends at death. The fact that the baby is in utero doesn't mean that it is less human than a baby outside of the womb. Because if it did, then a two-year-old who is not yet fully developed would be less human than a 14-year-old whose development is more than half complete. Or I would be less human than somebody who's older than I am. The Bible makes it clear that it is a human being in the womb. Listen to, uh, to the Christian Perspective of Life in the Womb podcast that I did a few weeks ago. The only difference between a baby inside of a woman and a baby outside of a woman is location. It's still a human. So hopefully that will help you uh, refute or answer some of the objections that you've, uh, that you've encountered pertaining to abortion. Thank you very much for your question, Simon. I appreciate it. God bless you. The next question is from Rick, who wrote, Will your podcast ever address Tiktaalik, the supposed missing link between land animals and fish? What are your thoughts on this? And all I have to say about this is that there's a very good reason why they can't find this Tiktaalik animal. And that's because it didn't exist. The belief that this missing link even existed presupposes that evolution is true. But there is absolutely zero evidence supporting evolution. 
as improbable as it is that a creature with gills would evolve to have lungs, which is the difference between sea animals and land animals, basically, that would require that there be literally millions and millions and millions of these tiktalic animals that existed. So it seems that based on the improbability of this happening and the fact that these supposed creatures aren't found in any of the levels of the Earth's crust, I would have to say that to say that these tiktalics are a real animal is just wishful thinking. It's conjecture. In fact, if any of you believe in evolution, I would strongly encourage you to listen to my podcast from, um, oh, it was about a month or two ago, on five reasons that I reject evolution. Let me give you a sixth reason, though, since we're on the topic. As intelligent as we are, and as advanced technologically and in every other way as we are, and as determined as many scientists are to prove that evolution is true, we've never seen life arise from non-life. And we've never been able to cause non-life to have life. Why can't non-life produce life? For the same reason that evolution is a lie, which our children are being force-fed in today's public schools, and our public schools are nothing more than cathedrals of secular humanism, which is completely opposed to Christianity. But thank you very much, Rick, for your question. I appreciate it. God bless you, and just keep growing closer to Jesus. I hope that answers your question. Go ahead and email me if you need any further clarification on that. I'd be happy to help you out with that. Uh, our next questions come from Amanda, who writes, One of the concerns I have after listening to some of your podcasts on evolution and the archaeology on dinosaurs existing is about people in the Bible living for hundreds of years. That is, one of my co-workers was trying to debate how there were arguments on why the Bible is not true because people cannot live that long. In trying to explain, another girl simply told him that it was in the time when Jesus was on the earth and he was doing miraculous things. Sometimes I find it hard to justify these things because I feel I may not have enough information on it myself. I do know the land and oxygen were purer and cleaner, but that is all I have to go on. Okay, in response, Amanda, first of all, Jesus was not on the earth back when uh, people were living for hundreds and hundreds of years. That was far before Jesus walked the earth. But this is a pretty common question that's one of those questions we might never have a, a definitive answer on until we can ask the Lord himself face to face. We do know this, though. Based on the genre in which the ages of the people are recorded in the Old Testament, we have no reason to think that the author or authors are trying to convey something other than literal human ages. And here's an interesting study for you to try sometime. Make a graph of the ages recorded of people and correlate the ages of those people to the events which transpire. And you'll find that after the flood, the ages of the people don't just go down gradually. It drops drastically. Each generation lives for fewer and fewer years, and it only takes a few generations until we have people living only around 100 years, which is how long people live even today. And uh, like you said, you know, the oxygen was more pure at that time, probably. The air probably had considerably more humidity to it since vapors were coming up from the ground. And uh, that's in Genesis 2.6. Also, people might have lived longer because if we take the six-day creation literally, uh, the bacteria that causes illness and disease might not have been sufficiently generated to produce disease. 
And we also know that uh, that there's no non-punitive death during Christ's 1,000-year reign, as, rec- um, as recorded in the book of Revelation, even though there will be a human population on earth during that time. So that suggests that our bodies are designed to either, maybe they age more slowly, or, you know, somehow we live for more than, you know, the, the typical 70 to 100 years. And Amanda continues here. She writes, another argument I faced with a co-worker was about writers of the books in the Bible not being Christians, which I know Paul was not. After beginning your Romans podcast, he killed many Christians before the Lord called him to submit, but I had to change the subject until I found the true facts. Now, I'm not sure what you mean by the true facts, but I can assure you, Amanda, that every New Testament author was indeed a Christian in that they had accepted Christ as the Messiah, they submitted themselves to his lordship, and uh, they were going around proclaiming the gospel. They were Christians. Even Paul was a Christian. Now, prior to being a Christian, he had persecuted Christians, but that doesn't negate the fact that he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah and as the only means through which salvation is found. Paul himself was indeed a Christian whose life was turned around 180 degrees by the gospel. Now, going through the other authors of the New Testament, Matthew had been one of the 12 disciples. He was a Christian. Mark was an assistant with Simon Peter's ministry. He was a Christian. Luke was one of Paul's ministry partners. He was a Christian. John was one of the 12 disciples, so obviously he was a Christian. Simon Peter was obviously a Christian. James was put in charge of the Christian church in Jerusalem, and he was the first one to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. So we know that James is a Christian. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the book of Hebrews was certainly written by someone who understood and taught that Jesus was the only means of salvation. So I would beg to differ with the argument that not everybody who wrote the New Testament was a Christian. I think the evidence suggests otherwise. But thank you, Amanda, for your question. I appreciate you writing in. God bless you. And our final question for today comes from Chris. And Chris wrote this in response to uh, the first podcast I did on worldviews uh, talking about humanism. He writes, if you are making the argument that humanists are subjective in the base of their ethics, I would say that all ethics seem to be subjectively based, Christians included. To take an example, slavery has existed for thousands of years of human history. In the Old Testament, one sees rules for how slaves were to be treated and who could be sold into slavery, etc., The New Testament also does not argue against slavery, and in fact, the Bible was used by those in the southern United States to justify their practice, yet other Christians opposed slavery in the North, which was right. It seems to me that those in the North looked around them and their own experience and how slavery was practiced, that it caused pain and broke up families, etc., and decided that it is something they would not want for themselves. Thus, it is unjust, and then they turn to the Bible to find passages that would help them articulate their understanding. Now, the question I have for you is, was slavery not a sin in the past? Did God change his mind and decide that slavery was bad in the 19th century, but before it was okay? The simplest explanation in my mind is that we as human beings base our ethics on our own experience with the world and what we are taught, etc., Now, I may be wrong, but my understanding of the Christian worldview is that it is based on some kind of objective morals. Yet this makes no sense to me as things Christians have viewed as okay in the past 
are now wrong, such as slavery. Okay, Chris, thank you so much for your email. This is a good question. A lot of people have probably wrestled with this question. I know I've received this question before, but I didn't answer it on the podcast. So let me go ahead and give you my best response to this. Yes, Christian ethics are based on objective morality, as are the the ethics of humanists. The only difference is that Christians recognize that their morality is objective. But if morality is anything but objective, but that we should be able to determine for ourselves what is ethical and what is not, then we may as well say that there was nothing wrong with Hitler killing some 12 million people, half of which were Jews who posed no threat to him. If morality is subjective, then it is just as correct to assert that Hitler and Mother Teresa were morally and ethically equivalent to each other, as it is to say that one was ethical but the other was not. Both of those statements would be true, equally true, but not even the staunchest humanist, I'm sure, would agree with that statement. So ethics, even from a humanist perspective, are based on objective morality. Now let's take a look at your your objection here, which is slavery in the Bible. First of all, God never condones slavery. He never commands his people to uh, to take slaves. The Bible never records him as commanding his people to take slaves. But what I think is happening here is you're confusing what God tolerates with what God wishes for. It's just like divorce. God never instructs his people to divorce in any situation in marriage, but he permits it under certain circumstances. But he never permitted slavery in the sense that it existed here in the United States. And in ancient times as well, there were countries which abused slaves. In fact, they almost all abused their slaves. Instead, God put some very strict guidelines on how slaves were to be treated. Whereas a lot of the nations, such as Egypt, treated their slaves like animals, the Bible records God as giving rights and privileges to slaves. In Leviticus 25.46, the Bible acknowledges that the slave is the property of the master, but in Exodus 21.20, the power that the master has over the slave is restricted. In Leviticus 22.11, God instructs that the slave has become a member of the household, not just that they should be treated like a member of the household, but that they are part of the household, just like a son or daughter. In Deuteronomy 5.14, slave owners are instructed to let their slaves rest on the Sabbath. When God is laying out the Ten Commandments, he specifically says that slaves shall not work on the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 23.16 and 17, God forbids extraditing slaves, sending them out into other nations, but commands, he commands that his people continue to provide asylum for them protection. In Deuteronomy 15.12, God commands that the amount of time that a person could be enslaved due to debt is six years, after which, if their debt still is not paid for, they're still to be released from their position as a slave. In Deuteronomy 15.14, God commands that slaves must be given gifts to help them survive on their own economically. So here you have a whole bunch of rights protecting the slaves. God is obviously humanizing them, whereas other countries were dehumanizing slaves. In the New Testament, no, slavery isn't opposed because there was nothing morally wrong with the way most slave owners treated their slaves. And in fact, some of the most politically influential and well-educated people in Rome were slaves. It wasn't a derogatory thing to be a slave in ancient Rome. So no, the New Testament doesn't oppose slavery because it wasn't a bad thing. It was very civil, in fact. 
Now, slavery in North America was simply not maintained by biblical standards, but there's no question that the treatment of most slaves in the United States was, in fact, unethical. But if you're honest with history, you know that Christians in the South made safe houses to which slaves who were trying to get to the North to be free could go. Uh, and this was called the Underground Railroad. And no, not all Christians participated in the Underground Railroad. But again, you can't confuse the unethical actions of some Christians with the will of God, which is that we love everybody else just as much as we love ourselves and that we treat others the same way we wish to be treated. But if you know how slavery was finally brought to an end, it had a lot to do with John Newton, who was a former slave trader who found Christ while he was a slave trader, and he repented. And a result of receiving the forgiveness of God, he turned his life around and preached against the practice of slavery, and he influenced thousands and thousands of people, among whom was William Wilberforce, who would one day become a leader in the campaign for the abolition of slavery. So Newton continued to preach against slavery until the last year of his life, even though he was blind. And the reason he did that is because his life had been turned around by Christianity. And finally, don't think that there is not still slavery in the world. There is. There are corporations out there who still practice slave labor in foreign countries. There's one corporation in particular that I have in mind. I won't mention them by name, but they pay their workers in China just enough to pay the rent for the apartment that they have to rent out if they wish to work for that corporation. And that's uh, that's basically what happened with the mill houses here in the United States. A slave was paid, but then the money that he made had to go back to the slave owner to pay the rent for the place that they were living. So there was really no way to escape. So basically, the people in China give all the money that the corporation pays them back to the corporation for the right to continue to work for the corporation. So are you blowing the whistle on that corporation as well, on that whole situation? Or are you wearing the clothes that those slaves are over there producing for pennies? The fact is this. Christianity has never, ever endorsed slavery in the way it was practiced here in America in the 19th century. God has never been okay with dehumanizing people because we are all made in the image of God, regardless of the color of our skin or our racial or ethnic background. But Chris, thank you so much for the question. I do appreciate you writing in. God bless you, and I, I'm always happy to answer more questions for you if you have them. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Remember, next week on Monday and Wednesday, we won't have podcasts. They'll be tied together on Thursday, which is uh, the first day I'll be back from my little vacation. But God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, keep growing closer to Jesus. And if you have any questions, go ahead and find my email on the website at BibleStudyPodcast.org. Click on today's podcast, and you'll be able to see my email address there. And go ahead and shoot me an email. I'll be happy to help you with any questions you have or clarification that you need. You know, whatever you need, I want to be here for you. So God bless you. I will see you guys next Thursday. Thanks for listening today.